I don't know whether you know the name um, Alec Matia. He was probably the, the great 20th century authority on the book of Isaiah, and he had been a principal of a theological college. Well, he retired in Cheshire, and um, uh, a number of evangelists, uh, we meet together regularly. We got in touch with him maybe about four or five years ago now, because he, he died 18 months ago, and we said, if we come over to you, will you do a Bible study for us? And he was 92 at the time, and he wrote back and said, no, I'm sorry, I don't do that anymore. But we leaned on him, and eventually he agreed. And we picked him up from his home and brought him to the church where we were, we were meeting. And he got out of the car, and I'm not exaggerating at all, he walked like this. And uh, he came, and he sat down, and then he said, you've made a big mistake in inviting me, because I really can't do very much at all. So I said, look, if you just give us 10 minutes, we'd be very thrilled. Well, he was teasing because he opened his Bible and I was seated next to him. We were in a circle so I could see he had no notes. And for one hour, he just expounded the scriptures. He never fought to recall a word. He never repeated himself. It was just incredible. Then we asked him questions for nearly 45 minutes and he was absolutely on the button. He knew all that was going on. It was amazing. And we met with him many, many times like this and uh, then eventually he went to be with the Lord. But it was, uh, it, they were wonderful times. But the very first time he told us about how he used to be a principal down in Bristol of this theological college and he'd have all the, the freshers, the first year students. And he would say to them, and of course they were going to do everything he said at that stage, he said to them, now, I want you to turn, please, to the page between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. And I think you'll see it's a blank page. And they'd all turn to it. And then he would say to them, now, I want you, and I want to hear you doing it, tear it out. Because it should not be there. He said, all the Old Testament and New Testament as we got, and he didn't even like the phrase Old Testament. It's all one book. And it's all about Christ. Well, it was a great way of getting that truth into our minds, and it stuck with us. So yes, I'm coming to this, I suppose, slightly obscure passage in, in 2 Kings 11, but I hope you'll see its relevance and uh, that it's not just a bit of history, but wow, it has some great lessons to teach us. I'm, I'm reading through uh, the Bible chronologically this year. I'm not going to do it quite like that again, but I'm just coming to the end of 2 Kings. I've just read this uh, this passage. It's the story of two ladies rescuing a baby. All right, this is what we're going to see. Now, the context, the nation has been divided. You remember that um, that Saul and David and Solomon ruled over one nation, but after Solomon, there was a division and Rehoboam became king of um, Judah and Jeroboam became king of Israel and there was a great division. And actually, Israel never did have a good and godly king. Judah had some, but some not so good ones as well. Ahab was the king of Israel and I think you probably all know he was an incredibly wicked king and he was married to Jezebel and she was a sort of she-devil so th th this was a terrible situation because they were now worshipping Baal I think you're supposed to pronounce it Baal but I can never belch when I'm saying that word so I'll just keep to, to Baal okay they, they were worshipping Baal instead of the true and the living God after all that the Lord had said and done and was evident nevertheless they turned from him to worship Baal now Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter and her name was Athaliah 
She worshipped Baal. In fact, she even went into Jerusalem to worship Baal. She was bad news altogether. She married the son of Jehoshaphat, who was actually the king in Judah of that time. Now, actually, when you read through Kings and Chronicles, you find that Jehoshaphat was a pretty good king. But he naively or foolishly, he made some big mistakes and he made a sort of affinity with Ahab. It's interesting, actually, all, I don't know about all, but most of the good kings of Judah went astray in their old age because they made affinity with ungodly people. And Jehoshaphat certainly did that. But you look at him and think, wow, he, he was a good man, but he did make some mistakes. Now, Ahab and Jezebel's um, daughter married the son of Jehoshaphat. So this wasn't a good arrangement. Now, there were kings, um, uh, well the context is that um, Jehoram of Israel, we'll come on to him, and Ahaziah of Judah were reigning at the time that this incident happened, but both of them were killed by Jehu. So it left, we're in a situation where there was no king in Israel and no king in Judah. Uh, there were vacancies on the throne. Unusual situation, but that's what happened. And it was then that Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, stepped in. Now, the significant thing about this is, yes, OK, she was a queen and not a king, but did that matter? What did matter was that she was a foreigner. She was not of David's line, okay? <clears throat> and yet God had promised that there would always be somebody of his line to rule the nation. So here we've got this queen stepping in to take the throne, but she's not of David's line. And yet she was to sit on the throne for six years. Now, I think the what I'm trying to sort of link that to with our day and age is that this was six years of great ungodliness. It was six years when it seemed as though God was laying low. It seemed as though God had forgotten his promises, and we'll see this in a moment more strongly. <coughs> it seems as though everything that had happened in the past and all God's dealings had suddenly been undone. And where is the Lord in all of this? He'd made his promises, but... Now, Athaliah, let me introduce her a little bit to you. I want you to imagine this is um, Jerusalem's OK or Hello magazine, all right? And there's a picture of Athaliah on the front page. You think, oh, let's find out all about her. You don't really read a magazine like that, but nevertheless, we'll read a little bit of information about her. Her father, Ahab, well, he was killed in battle. Imagine the trauma of that for Athaliah. Her mother, Jezebel, yeah, she was killed. She was thrown over the city wall and she was trampled under by horses and ju just a few bones of her body were left. Imagine what that did to Athaliah. Her brother, Ahaziah, fell through a window and died. Her other brother was shot through the heart by Jehu, who was responsible for many deaths. Her 70 half-brothers, all of them were killed by Jehu. Her husband died of a painful bowel disease. Her son Ahaziah was killed by Jehu when he was running away. Her brother in, brothers-in-law were all murdered by her husband. Some of her grandchildren were killed by Arabs and Philistines. 
And her husband wiped out 42 of his relatives. And she was the one who was going to be queen. Now, this isn't just from historical books of the day and age. It's all there in these, these chapters in Kings. What a, what a woman she was. And yet she took the throne at the age of 35. Again, a little bit more information. This is just under another photo of her in Hello magazine. She was the daughter of a king. She was the sister of a king. She was the wife of a king. She was the mother of a king. And yet she wanted to be queen. Isn't that typical of people today? Never, never happy with with what you've got. You always wanted more. And when she took to the throne, incredibly, how can you ever do this? She ordered all her grandchildren to be executed. And that's where we pick up this story. So this ungodly, and you'd have to say crazy, mixed up woman, becomes queen. She should never have been queen. She was a foreigner, etc. And yet we have the backcloth that God said. He promised that David's line would always be there. During those next six years while she reigned, I would imagine there would be people like us who would gather and in our sort of conversations after the worship service, we would think, where is God in all of this? You know, this morning we prayed, didn't we, about what had happened in Ireland with regard to the Abortion Act. Uh, I, I was really as deeply, deeply saddened by that. But I'll tell you what saddened me even more, the celebratory nature of the people immediately afterwards, popping their champagne bottles and, and just thrilled that they're going to murder unborn babies. And you think, what on earth is going on in Europe? And yet for Britain, we've got some of the most liberal so-called laws with regard to abortion. It just continues. And sometimes when we chatter between ourselves, we, we, we talk like this. What's happening? You know, homosexual marriage, the transgender issue. And what is going on in our society? We wonder like that. And they must have done exactly the same while she was, she was on the throne. But while she was having her grandchildren killed something remarkable happened. And this is where somebody called Jehosheba enters in. She is the sister of the late King Ahaziah. Okay? So it was her nephews who were killed. She was married to the high priest, whose name was Jehoiada. Now, as the guards were killing these grandchildren, and you can imagine all the screams and the terror and the horror of it, all, while all that is going on, Jehosheba turns to her nurse and says, quick, rescue that one. And they, they get this tiny little baby, one year old, and they, they bring him into, into the, the, the high priest's home and they push him into, well, it says a bedroom here. And uh, I don't know whether it was a brush cupboard, a little cubby hole. They push him in. And, and, and do you know, just outside, there was all this murder going on. They must have been praying as, as, as deeply as they could. Please, may this little child not cry. If you've, um, if you've ever been to Corrie Ten Boom's place in, in Harlem, when the Jews were hidden in that very upstairs uh, little room behind a wall and the Gestapo and the Nazis were in the house. If any of those Jews had sneezed or coughed or I don't know what, you know, everything would have been um, wrecked and ruined. Praise the Lord they didn't. And praise the Lord this little boy <laughs> for however many hours didn't cry and, and was locked away there. So God's promises 
or if you want, God's royal line was now down to a 12-month-old baby <laughs> pushed into a cupboard. Isn't that remarkable? It hangs on such a, a slender thread. So in the wickedness of the, the nation, what is quite remarkable is that you do have this, this godly Jehoiada, the high priest, and his wife, Jehosheba, and somehow in the midst of the wickedness, they manage to keep themselves clean. And I think there's a challenge for us in this day and age when we're, we're bombarded with images and ideas and secularism that could so easily pollute us and contaminate us, but they kept themselves clean. They, they were living in the, <laughs> they were living in the temple, which was actually next door to the palace. So you've got Athaliah, the wicked queen, and just next door, there they are, so different from the queen, and they're hiding this little boy. He stays in the high priest's house for six years. I, I, I sometimes wonder if he was ever spotted by anybody who said, do you know he looks very much like the king who used to reign? Isn't there a similar, look at his hair, look at his eyes, it's the same sort of nose, isn't it? I wonder, but anyway, it didn't happen. One woman is seeking to destroy the nation spiritually and the other woman seeking to save the nation. And then the, the lengthiest part of the chapter that we just read is that um, the plan where the high priest, Jehoiada, brings in the army. And, and this is quite remarkable as well, because he brings in the commanders of the army and he sort of shuts the door, makes sure nobody's listening. <laughs> right, what I've got to share is between these four walls. You must not spill the beans. You mustn't say anything. Look. Having sworn you to secrecy, I, I have a plan. If one of those commanders had wobbled, or if one of those commanders had just said, well, just between you and me, can I tell you something I've heard? Uh, you know, if, if there'd been a leaked document, everything again would have been spoiled. Such is the slender thread of the fulfilment of the promises of God. But he said, on the Sabbath day, bring your shields and your spears. And at the time when we change the guard... We're going to present to the nation a seven-year-old boy called Joash with the words, this is your king. Now, of course, we know what happened. We know that he was accepted. They didn't know that. Oh, they didn't know how Athaliah was going to react or what she would do. Uh, they, they, they believed they were obeying what God had for them, and we believe that too. But they had no idea what the outcome would be. Well, it was an amazing outcome. Secrecy was kept, the Sabbath day came, the boy was presented and the people covenanted with the Lord that they were going to be God's, his. And the crowd marched to the temple of Baal and they dismantled it. The pagan high priest was executed, Athaliah was executed and God's king. Oh yes, only seven years of age, but nevertheless, God's king was on the throne. So that's the chapter. But I do want to apply it. I, I think it's an amazing passage, but I want to apply it. And I really have just got three straightforward, simple truths I want us to get across. And I, I trust they'll be a, of encouragement to you. But here's the first one. God has made promises and he keeps them. God never forgets anything. God cannot lie you know, people say, oh, God can do anything. No, 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 he can't. He can't contradict himself. He can't sin. And God, who is truth, cannot lie. So God cannot lie. God is faithful. 
Now, he made promises about the nation of Israel and Judah, etc. But he's made promises to us as well. That if we've trusted him, we're his. We're in his grip. That he is going to be with us through life. And yes, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he'll be with us and we don't need to fear any evil. And yes, he's going to play, take us to be with himself throughout all eternity. The people of those days must have wondered, and, and this phrase, God lying low, does God lie low at times? We read in scripture that sometimes he hides himself. Now, I'd love to get some of these theologians together and say, what does that mean? Because it's a difficult concept, isn't it? A God who has revealed himself hides himself. A God who is always incredibly active, and he is, and yet we see what's happening in our society. Does God lie low? I've worked, as you know, as an evangelist, a travelling evangelist, uh, full-time now for, uh, well, over 35 years. I'm ageing myself, aren't I? But I have to say, if I'm going to be very honest, and maybe I'm being too personal, too, I don't know, bearing my heart too much, I would say the last two or three years have been the toughest in terms of response. So I have now done some missions where I've worked with the church for a week and we've not seen any apparent fruit at all. Now, I, I don't think I could have said that three years ago, but things have become tough, tougher. There is, there's a sort of, there's an antagonism that isn't nasty yet, but nevertheless, it's deep-seated, but it's an antagonism towards the gospel from people who don't actually know what the gospel is. So they're opposed to it, but they don't understand it. I was talking with a minister on, on Friday, and uh, certain things have happened to, to him in his life, and it would be wrong to share them openly at the moment, but he was dealing with a social worker about something, and he just said to the social worker in Leeds, he said, I became a Christian at university. The social worker replied like this, what do you mean you became a Christian? Did you buy something? He had no idea, no concept whatsoever of what it even means to become a Christian. Now, these are the people we're trying to reach, aren't we? And yet, I don't know, they, they, they don't like our message, but they don't know our message, which is very paradoxical. And, and we look and think, wow, what, what's going on? And yet, you go through the Bible, you go through 2,000 years of history since Christ, and history has been plagued with rulers who have been quite anti-God. We think of Hitler, we think of Pol Pot, we think of Ceausescu. Kim Jong-un, Kim, Kim Jong-un, the, the North Korean president, is not a Christian. And we know that many, many Christians are incarcerated in the most awful ways. His father was not a Christian and was doing the same. His grandfather was not a Christian and doing the same. His great-grandmother was a born-again believer who loved the Lord, who prayed for her children, and yet... And these things are very hard to understand. And Israel and Judah had their fair share of kings who were absolutely anti-God. And yet, here we are called to live rubbing shoulders with people who are perhaps like that, and yet we love the Lord. 
Do you remember in the parable of the wheat and the tares or the wheat and the weeds? Uh, Jesus interpreting it or, or explaining it to begin with and then interpreting it. Let both grow together until the harvest. We are placed in a world, in a society, and ultimately which has got a sort of tradition of being a very religious place. Nevertheless, we are rubbing shoulders with people who actually don't want the Lord to rule over them. And reprobate rulers throughout the years can be sometimes quite savage towards the Lord Jesus and those who follow him. And those who are closest to Christ often are in the firing line. And yet the Lord is with us and his promises remain. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow and worship that great idol. Actually, most of the other Israelites, and there would have been hundreds there, presumably they all did bow. But they didn't. And they could have easily sort of, I don't know, covered their tracks a little bit when the music played. They they could have perhaps thought, we'll just tie up our shoelaces and give the impression. No, no, no. They stood absolutely resolute resolute that we're we're not bowing to them. Daniel, you know, he's thrown into a lion's den. Was it Spurgeon (laughs) who said, no wonder the lions didn't touch him. He was just made of of bone and gristle. (laughs) Well, it's a nice thought. But God shut the mouths of the lions, didn't he? And Peter and John, that that brave couple, when they're commanded to be silent about Jesus, they said, look, who do we obey? Do we obey you or do we obey God? And look, we cannot help but speak of the things that we've heard. I believe we're living in an age where there is a sort of intimidation into silence. If you work for the government, whether in the health service or education or social service or civil service, the pressure to be silent is immense. I was taking a mission in a large Anglican church in Oxford and um, we'd had a good week and what I do in missions, I like to interview somebody for 35, maybe 40 minutes, and then I speak for, anyway, and <laughs> I preach the gospel for that. And so night by night, we'd had these um, these people whom I'd interviewed. But on Sunday, we normally do it a little bit differently. And instead of me interviewing somebody at length, normally the, the vicar or the, the curate or the minister, pastor, they interview two or three local Christians much more briefly. And the curate was interviewing, I think, three or four local Christians. One of them was, or is a doctor. She's quite well known because she's written some very fine Christian books. And, um, yeah, she told us her story of how she was converted. She's vivacious. She's, she was interesting to listen to. It was a good testimony. And then the, the curate just happened to say, and how does being a Christian impact you as a GP? Without a second's hesitation, she said, Oh, I never mention I'm a Christian at work. Not to the patients, not to my colleagues. I don't want to be struck off. That really upset me, I've got to say. But then I was doing a carol service in um, Sunbridge Road Mission um, about two, three Christmases ago. And um, they had a testimony. I didn't interview. They just had a a lady stand up and give her testimony. Somebody I've I've met and known. And uh, she's lovely. She's Romanian. She grew up in Ceausescu's Romania. She was an atheist and she was a member of the Communist Party. And then in the mid-1980s, she was converted in Romania. And she tried to live for the Lord and speak for the Lord and she did her best. But then, of course, 1989, Christmas Day, Nicolae Ceausescu was executed. And and a little while later, she came over to, to work here. She married here 
and she works for the civil service. In fact, she's quite high up now in the civil service, and she told this story. And then she just said this. For me to speak of Christ to my colleagues at work is more difficult and more costly than ever it was for me to speak of Christ in Ceausescu's Romania. And if I can just give one more illustration, because I think this is very powerful. I was explaining to one or two of you how I I go um, perhaps twice a year to the Orthodox Coptic Society of Leeds University. I do Bible study with these Egyptian Coptics. It's very unusual and um, it's a great privilege. They're all... They're all high flyers. All of them are doctors doing postgraduate work. There'll be about 25 of them. The first time I went there, I I asked, how long have I got to speak? And they said, 75 minutes, please, and then 30 minutes of questions. I thought, oh, well, that's different from Christian unions. They say, 22 minutes and no more. (laughs) Anyway, so I had 75 minutes. I did Isaiah 53 with them. and, And then I took questions. And then one of them, in the question time, it was a female doctor, she just said, oh, it's more difficult to be a Christian here than it is in Egypt. So I sort of, you, I, you know, there was an astonished look from me. And, um, and they all thought, oh, yes, it is. So I said, how can that be? And this is what she said. We know we may lay down our lives for Christ in Egypt, but in Britain, the pressure to be secular, silent and materialistic is overwhelming. Isn't that stunning? And yet, I say again, God has made his promises. He is going to build his church. He is going to keep his people. He is going to be at work to save the lost. And somehow because of the pressure, which is immense, we can lose sight of this. We can become discouraged and disheartened and think, oh, here we are in church, we want to see Otley converted and yet we give out 500 packs, that's wonderful. But where were they all this morning, you know? And it can be very disheartening. But God has made his promises and he'll keep them. Second, I must move on. You're you're listening too attentively and it encourages me to go on to all sorts of tangents that are not in my notes. My wife always says, Roger, you get into trouble for the bits that are not in your notes. Keep to them. (laughs) Secondly, God has his people and he uses them. So who was this nurse? You know, Jehoiada said, quick, go and get this little boy, Joab. Who was the nurse? We've no idea. You can speculate, you know, and uh, but we, we've no idea. She was just one of the anonymous people who did a very significant work for God. There's no statue for her in Jerusalem as far as we know. And yet, in God's economy, in, in heaven... She's recorded as a significant person. Who led you to Christ? Uh, are they well known or not really? The person who led me to Christ, Reverend Hagab Saharian. Have any of you ever heard of him? No. But was he significant? Yes. The Lord used him to explain the gospel to me and I was converted. The, the, the book of Romans, this great, weighty, theological, wonderful book. But it ends in chapter 16 with this long list of people that Paul sends his greetings to. Now, some of them we do know. Most of them we've no idea who. So who was that? Oh, I wish you'd told us all, Paul. But no, he just sends his greetings. And uh, who were these people? And then I, I, th- I love the fact that he, he, having sent all these greetings to these people, he says, oh, actually, there are some others with me. And they're sending their greetings as well. So who are these others? Well, one of them is the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the city where they're Wow. 
He's an influential person. And then another one is Quartus. Quartus? <laughs> what sort of name is that? Quartus? Well, what does it mean? You all know what it means. It means number four. So here's a guy sitting with the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the City and the Apostle Paul, and he's called number four. He doesn't even have a name. Almost certainly, he's a slave. Number four, come and do this. And yet, there he is, recorded in Scripture as supporting, encouraging, working with the Apostle Paul. The unknown characters and... And we're all, in God's economy, incredibly valuable. Not only because he loves us and has died for us and made us his, but because we're, we're workers with the Lord. In fact, in scripture you get this double tone. We read about him working with us and us also working with him. It's rather nice. We're co-laborers together with him. I, another tangent, but it's, uh, I'm reading the book at the moment, a biography. I love biography. You've probably picked that up. And uh, again, it's a Victorian biography of a man called R.C. Morgan. Yeah, I doubt if you've heard of him, but some of you who've been Christians for a long time will remember the publisher, Marshall Morgan and Scott. Well, this is the, the biography of this man called R.C. Morgan. And uh, I've, I'm loving it, I have to say. And um, uh, he... He was married, he was converted and, and uh, married to a Christian woman. They had children. The, the eldest one died in infancy. Of course, that happened so often in Victorian days, didn't it? And then he had another son, and he loved this son. He, there was another one as well who actually wrote this biography. But the second child, he loved very much. But when he was a teenager, this second son went swimming in a river in the... In London, it wasn't River Thames, I forgot which one it was now. But there'd been some mischievous boys around and they'd removed the sign that says, do not swim here, dangerous currents. So he takes off his clothes, puts them by the, the riverside and goes swimming. But he got into trouble and he puts out his arm to be rescued and the boys who removed the sign just kicked it. And he drowned. Well, the message got to R.C. Morgan working in... He was the editor of the Christian newspaper at that time. They got to him and he quickly asked whether he got a carriage, made his way to the river. And there were some people, I don't know whether it was the police or whatever, but they were dredging the river to try to get the body of the boy. And there was quite a crowd now watching. And uh, the father was just longing that they might, you know, perhaps find the, the, the boy alive. But eventually they got the, the body and he was dead. And they bring it to the shore and they put it down by the clothes. Actually, those guys had rifled through the boys' clothes, taken a watch and other things. It was all very tragic. But listen what happened next. R.C. Morgan stood because there was a crowd there and with a broken and heavy heart, he just said, this was my son and I can't believe he's just died. But I want you to know he was a Christian and he will be in heaven now. And he went on to preach the gospel. There's a footnote in the book. I would have put it in the main body of the text. But anyway, there was a footnote. And the brother says, 20 years later, I was in a hosiery shop. And I started to witness to the man behind the counter who said, oh, I am a Christian. But he said, I wanted to make sure. So I said, oh, how did you become a Christian? Guess what? He said, 20 years ago, I was with a crowd watching them dredge the river to get the body of a boy. 
And sure enough, they got it. And then the father stood up and he preached the gospel. And that very day, I was converted to Christ. So one boy dies and another one comes to life. Isn't that amazing? You see, God is still on the throne. He has his people and he uses us. No matter how bleak and difficult the situation and how uphill Christian ministry and service might appear to be at the moment, God is still on the throne and he does use us. We go out to scatter gospel seed day by day. We've no idea how effective it will be, but God uses it. His word will not return unto him void. I must finish, must I? But third little point, quickly. God has his purposes and he fulfills them. And if there are times when we are bewildered, when we've prayed and we think, Lord, why aren't you answering like this? Why, why are our children becoming prodigal children? Why are our grandchildren becoming prodigal grandchildren? Why is it that the church seems so ineffective despite all our work and labour and money and expense and prayers, etc.? Where we just trust. Uh, when God acts, no one can stop him. And I just want to remind us all, and sort of just to rest and relish in this truth, that God is building his church. God is still giving gifts. Now, our gifts vary, you know, and music. Yeah, I, I have no idea about music at all. You know, sometimes I go to a church and they're clapping. So I try and clap, and as soon as I start to clap, I notice that everybody else has changed the rhythm, and they're all looking at, they're all looking at me, and oh, and uh, I've, I've no sense of rhythm, I've no sense of music. I'd love to play the, the violin, but I, you know, it would never happen for me. That's not my gift, but for some of you, it is. I, I you know, I'm not a mechanic. If my car engine explodes, I can spray WD-40 on it, but if that doesn't work, I can't do anything else, you know, that's it, I'm, I'm absolutely and, and so it goes on, but some of you are mechanics, and we, we all have different gifts, and every one of us does have a, have a gift, and he has his people, and he gives us gifts, and he equips us for works of service, he is still saving people, we may not at this moment be seeing revival but do you remember Ruth went into the field, and she gleaned It'd be great if she'd got a great big scythe and, you know, does a Billy Graham and woof, this great app. But no, most of us are not like that. I don't think any of us are. But we can glean. And Ruth sees some barley and she picks up that one. Oh, and a bit more. And she picks up that one and that one. And each little bit helps to build a bundle. You have to keep your eyes open to glean. You have to stoop low to glean. But the gleaners, whoops, the gleaners are careful to retain as she is to obtain. When you're reaping, people can slip through the net. When you're gleaning, you don't want to lose anything you've got. And perhaps God has his purpose in gleaning as well as in reaping. And God is preparing a place in heaven for us. Where the Lord has gone, we're going to go. A place reserved in heaven for you, says Peter. And he is directing history. I don't know how the historians of the church will look back on our period of, of church history in Britain. Maybe they will say it was a dark age. But nevertheless, even in the dark ages, God has his people. There was a moment in history when God's promises seemed as though they were resting on the most slender thread. And for six years, this little boy hidden in a broom cupboard. And yet he's the king. 
And he's the one who illustrates the great truth that God does not lie, but he keeps his word.